Chapter 25 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 25. The joy she experienced at again finding him as an angel of consolation in this insupportable solitude silenced all the scruples and all the fears she had upon her mind but a moment before when thinking of him without hope of soon seeing him. She passionately returned his embrace, and as he was already endeavoring to disengage himself from her arms in order to pick up his black mask which had fallen, she retained him, crying out, Do not leave me! Do not abandon me! Her voice was supplicating, her caresses irresistible. The unknown fell at her feet, and hiding his face in the folds of her robe, which he covered with kisses, remained some moments as if divided between rapture and despair. Then, taking up his mask and slipping a letter into Consuelo's hand, he rushed into the pavilion and disappeared before she could see his features. She followed him, and by the light of a little lamp of alabaster, which Matthias lighted every evening at the bottom of the staircase, she hoped to discover him. But by the time she had ascended a few steps, he had become invisible." She ran in vain through every part of the pavilion. She could find no trace of him, and but for the letter which she held in her trembling hand, she might have thought she had dreamed. Finally, she decided upon returning to her boudoir in order to read that letter, the writing of which appeared to her this time to be intentionally disguised rather than changed by suffering. It contained very nearly what follows. I can neither see you nor speak to you, but I am not forbidden to write to you. Will you permit it? Will you dare reply to the unknown? If I had this happiness, I might find your letters and place my own during your sleep in a book which you could leave in the evening upon the garden bench by the waterside. I love you with passion, with idolatry, with madness. I am overcome. My strength is broken. My activity, my zeal, my enthusiasm for the work to which I have vowed myself, all, even to the sentiment of duty, are annihilated in me if you do not love me. Bound to strange and terrible duties by my oaths, by the gift and abandonment of my will, I waver between the thought of infamy and that of suicide, for I cannot persuade myself that you really love me and that at this present moment distrust and fear may not already have effaced your involuntary love for me. Can it be otherwise? I am, for you, only a shadow, the dream of a night, the illusion of an instant. Well, to make myself beloved by you, I feel ready, twenty times a day, to sacrifice my honor, to break my word, to stain my conscience with a perjury. If you should succeed in escaping from this prison, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, even were I obliged to expiate, by a life of shame and of remorse, the rapture of seeing you, 
though for a single day, and of hearing you say again, though but once, I love you, and yet if you refuse to associate yourself in the work of the invisibles, if the oaths which will doubtless be required of you terrify and repel you, I shall be forbidden ever to see you again. But I will not obey. I cannot obey. No, I have suffered enough. I have labored enough. I have long enough served the cause of humanity. If you are not the recompense of my labor, I renounce it. I will degrade myself by returning to the world, to its laws and its customs. My reason is troubled, as you see. Oh, have pity, have pity on me. Do not tell me that you no longer love me. I cannot bear that blow. I should not wish to believe it, or, if I believed it, I must die. Consuelo read this billet in the midst of the noise of the few seas and shells of the fireworks, which burst in the air without attracting her attention. Absorbed in her reading, she nevertheless experienced, without being conscious of it, that electric shock which is caused, especially in impressible organizations, by the explosion of powder and by all violent noises in general. The former operates particularly on the imagination, when it does not act physically upon a weak and diseased body by painful shudderings. It exalts, on the contrary, the mind and the senses of persons who are brave and well-constituted. It even awakens in some women intrepid instincts, ideas of conflict, and, as it were, vague regrets that they are not men. Finally, if there be a decidedly marked accent, which occasions a kind of quasi-musical enjoyment in the voice of the torrent, which precipitates itself in the roaring of the wave which breaks, in the rolling of the thunder, that accent of anger, of threat, of bravery, that voice of strength, so to speak, is found in the booming of cannon, in the whistling of bullets, and in the thousand commotions of the atmosphere by which fireworks mimic the shock of battle. Consuelo perhaps experienced the effect while reading the first love letter, properly so called, the first billet doux she had ever received. She felt herself courageous, brave, and almost rash. A kind of intoxication made her find this declaration of love more exciting and more persuasive than all the words of Albert, as she had found the kiss of the Chevalier more sweet, more ardent than all those of Anzaletto. She therefore began to write without hesitation, and, while the exploding mortar shook the echoes of the park, the odor of saltpeter stifled the perfume of the flowers, and the Bengal fires illumined the front of the pavilion without her deigning to perceive them. Consuelo replied, Yes, I love you. I have said it. I have confessed it to you. And were I obliged to repent of it, were I obliged to blush for it a thousand times, I could never blot out from the strange and incomprehensible book of my destiny that page which I myself have written, and which is in your hands. It was the expression of an impulse, perhaps, to be condemned, senseless, perhaps, but deeply true and ardently felt. Were you the last of men, 
I should nonetheless have placed in you my ideal. Should you degrade me by a contemptuous and cruel conduct, I have nonetheless experienced, in the contact of your heart, a transport which I had never tasted, and which seemed to me as holy as the angels are pure. You see, I repeat to you what you wrote to me in reply to the confidences which I had addressed to Beppo. We do nothing but repeat to each other that with which we are both, I believe, vividly penetrated and loyally persuaded. Why and how should we deceive ourselves? We do not know each other. Perhaps we shall never know each other. Strange fatality. Yet we love and cannot explain the first causes of that love any more than we can foresee the mysterious end. Now I abandon myself to your word, to your honor. I do not combat the feeling with which you inspire me. Do not let me deceive myself. I ask of you only one thing in the world, which is not to pretend to love me, never to see me again if you do not love me. It is to abandon me to my fate, whatever it may be, without fearing that I shall ever accuse or blame you for this quickly passing illusion of happiness which you will have given me. It seems to me that what I ask of you is so easy. There are some moments when I am terrified, I confess, at the blind confidence which impels me towards you. But as soon as you appear, as soon as my hand is in yours, or when I look upon your writing, your writing, which is nevertheless disguised and changed, as if you did not wish me to have the least outward and visible indication of you. In fine, when I simply hear the sound of your steps, all my fears vanish, and I cannot help believing you my best friend upon the earth. But why conceal yourself thus? What horrible secret is then covered by your mask and your silence? Have I seen you elsewhere? Must I fear and repel you on the day when I know your name? When I see your features? If you are absolutely unknown to me, as you have said, whence comes it that you obey so blindly the strange law of the invisibles? Are you still write to me today that you are ready to free yourself from it and to follow me to the ends of the earth? And if I required, before I would fly with you, that you should have no concealment from me. Would you take off that mask? Would you speak to me? To enable me to know you, I must bind myself, you say. To what? By oaths to the invisibles? But for what work? What must I, with my eyes closed, my conscience mute, my mind in darkness, give and abandon my will as you yourself have done? at least with knowledge of the why and wherefore, and to decide to these unheard of acts of blind devotedness, you will not commit the least infraction of the rules of your order. For I see well that you belong to one of those mysterious orders which are here called secret societies, and which are said to be numerous in Germany, unless this be simply a political conspiracy against blank as I was told at Berlin. Well, whatever it may be, if I may have the liberty to refuse when I am informed of what is required of me, 
I will bind myself by the most terrible oaths never to reveal anything. Can I do more without being unworthy of the love of a man who carries his scruples and his fidelity to his oath so far as not to be willing to let me hear that word, which I myself have pronounced in contempt of the prudence and the modesty imposed on my sex? I love you. Consuelo placed this letter in a book, which she deposited in the garden at the spot mentioned. Then she slowly withdrew and remained hidden a long time in the foliage, hoping to see the chevalier arrive and trembling to leave there this avowal of her most secret feelings, which might fall into strange hands. Still, as hours passed without the appearance of anyone, and she remembered these words of the unknown's letter, I will go and take your letter during your sleep. She judged that she ought to conform entirely to his advice, and she retired to her apartment, where, after a thousand agitated reveries, by turns painful and delicious, she at last fell asleep to the indistinct sound of the music of the ball, which recommenced. The flourishes which sounded during supper, and the distant rolling of the carriages, which announced the departure of the numerous guests of the residence at dawn of day. At nine o'clock precisely, our recluse entered the hall in which she took her meals, which she found always served there with a scrupulous punctuality and a refinement worthy of the place. Matthias remained standing behind her chair in the respectfully phlegmatic attitude which was habitual to him. Consuelo had before descended to the garden, the Chevalier had taken the letter, for it was no longer in the book. But Consuelo had hoped to find another letter from him, and she already accused him of lukewarmness in their correspondence. She felt uneasy, excited, and rather driven to extremity by the monotony of the life to which they seemed determined to compel her. She therefore decided to move at a venture in order to see if she could not hasten the course of events slowly prepared about her. On that very day, for the first time, Matthias was gloomy and taciturn. Master Matthias, said she with a forced gaiety, I see through your mask that your eyes are dull, and that you are fatigued. You did not sleep much last night. Madam does me too much honor in being willing to laugh at me, replied Matthias, with a little sharpness, but as Madame has the happiness to live with an uncovered face, I can see with more clearness that she attributes to me the fatigue and sleeplessness from which she herself suffered last night. Your speaking mirrors inform me of that fact before you, Master Matthias. I know that I have become very ugly, and I think that I shall soon be much more so if ennui continues to consume me. Is Madame Onweed, returned Matthias in the tone in which he would have said, Did Madame ring? Yes, Matthias, I am exceedingly so, and I begin to be unable to bear this seclusion. As no one does me the honor of a visit or of a letter, I presume I have been forgotten here, and, as you are the only exception, I think I may be allowed to say that I begin to find my situation embarrassing and strange. I cannot presume to judge of Madame's situation, replied Matthias, 
but it seemed to me that Madame did receive, not long since, both a visit and a letter. Who can have told you such a thing, Matthias? cried Consuelo, blushing. I would say, replied he, in an ironically humble tone, if I did not fear to offend Madame and to be tedious by presuming to converse with her. If you were my domestic master, Matthias, I know not what airs of grandeur I might assume with you. But as hitherto, I have had no other servant than myself, and as, moreover, you appear to be rather my guardian than my major-domo, I request you to converse, if you please, the same as on other days. You have too much wit this morning to tire me. That is, Madame is too much tired of her own company to be difficult. Then I will say to Madame that there was a great fete at the chateau last night. I know it. I heard the fireworks and the music. At that time, a person who was closely watched since Madame's arrival here thought he could take advantage of the disorder and the noise to introduce himself into the reserved park, in spite of the most severe prohibitions. Thence came an unpleasant result, but I fear to grieve Madame by informing her. I now think grief preferable to ennui and anxiety. Speak quickly, therefore, Mr. Matthias. Well, Madam, this morning I saw carried to prison the most amiable, the youngest, the bravest, the most generous, the most witty, the greatest of all my masters, the Chevalier Liverani. Liverani? Who's Liverani? cried Consuelo, deeply agitated. To prison, the Chevalier? Tell me, oh my God, who is this Chevalier? Who is this Liverani? I have described him sufficiently to Madame. I do not know if she is much or little acquainted with him. But what is certain is that he was carried to the great tower for having spoken and written to Madame, and for not being willing to communicate to His Highness the reply which Madame had made to him. The great tower, His Highness, is all that you tell me serious, Matthias? Am I here in the power of a sovereign prince who treats me as a prisoner of state and who punishes his subjects for any little interest or pity they may testify towards me? Or am I indeed mystified by some rich lord with strange ideas who tries to terrify me in order to prove my gratitude for services rendered? I am not forbidden to inform Madame that she is in the house of a very rich prince who is at the same time a great philosopher. And the Supreme Chief of the Council of the Invisibles, added Consuelo. I do not know what Madame means by that, replied Matthias, with the most complete indifference. In the list of the titles and dignities of His Highness, I have never heard that quality mentioned. But shall I not be permitted to see this prince, to throw myself at his feet, to ask of him the liberty of this Chevalier Liverani, who is innocent of any indiscretion, as I can swear? I cannot say, and I think that it would at least be difficult to obtain such a permission. Nevertheless, I have access every evening to His Highness, for some moments, in order to give him an account of Madame's health and occupations. And if Madame should write, I could perhaps succeed in inducing His Highness to read her billet without its passing through the hands of his secretaries. 
Dear Mr. Mateus, you are goodness itself, and I am sure you must have the confidence of the prince. Yes, certainly, I will write since you are so generous as to interest yourself for the chevalier. It is true that I feel more interest for him than for any other. He saved my life at the risk of his own in a conflagration. He nursed me and cured me of my burns. He replaced the property I had lost. He passed whole nights watching me as if he had been my servant and I his master. He rescued from vice a niece of mine, and by his good words and his generous aid made her an honest woman. What good has he not done in all this country and in all Europe from what they say? He is the most perfect young man in existence, and his highness loves him as his own son. And yet his highness sends him to prison for a trifling fault. Oh, madam does not know that no fault is trifling to the eyes of his highness, in point of indiscretion. He is then a very despotic prince, admirably just but terribly severe. And how can I in any way enter into the occupations of his mind and the decisions of his counsel? Of that I am ignorant, as Madame well may think. Many secrets are constantly in motion around this chateau, especially when the prince comes to pass some weeks here, which does not often happen. A poor servant like myself, who should seek to penetrate them, would not be long endured. And as I am the oldest of the persons attached to the house, Madame must understand that I am neither curious nor a great talker. Otherwise... I understand, Mr. Mateus, but would it be indiscreet to ask if the confinement to which the chevalier is subjected is rigorous? It must be so, madam, though I know nothing of what takes place in the tower and in the subterraneans. I have seen more persons enter than I have ever seen come out. I do not know if there are outlets in the forest. I know of none in the park. You make me tremble, Mateus. Is it possible that I can have drawn serious misfortunes upon the head of that worthy young man? Tell me, is the prince of a violent or of a cold character? Are his sentences dictated by a hasty indignation or by a deliberate and lasting dissatisfaction? Those are details into which it is not proper for me to enter, replied Matthias, coldly. Well, tell me of the chevalier, at least. Is he a man to ask and obtain pardon, or to encase himself in a haughty silence? He is tender and gentle, full of respect and submission to his highness. But if Madame has entrusted any secret to him, she may be tranquil. He would allow himself to be tortured rather than reveal the secret of another, were to the ear of a confessor. Well, I will myself reveal to his highness that secret which he considers important enough to excite his anger against an unfortunate. Oh, my good Mateus, can you not carry my letter at once? Impossible before night, madam. No matter, I will write now. An unexpected opportunity may offer. Consuelo entered her cabinet and wrote to ask of the anonymous prince an interview in which she promised to reply sincerely to all the questions he may deign to address to her. At midnight, Matthias brought to her this sealed reply. If it be to the prince that you wish to speak, 
your request is foolish. You will not see him. You will never know him. You will never know his name. If it be before the council of the invisibles that you wish to appear, you will be heard. But reflect upon the consequences of your resolution. It will decide upon your life and that of another. End of chapter 25